Y'all can talk about all these viruses, and that's good, but you can't forget the main one. It's plaguing us, bruh. Down with the colonial virus. 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 Uhuru! Welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Awambi Tangu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our mind 24-7. On January 20th, Kamala Harris became the first woman vice president and the second African in the executive branch of the United States. This was heralded as a victory for women everywhere, including African women. However, in the previous week, U.S. unemployment reports displayed a vastly different situation for African working-class women and Spanish-speaking indigenous women. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, while the overall unemployment numbers remained steady in the United States, 82,000 African women and 31,000 Spanish-speaking indigenous women lost jobs. Comparatively, white women gained jobs. There is, in fact, no economic category where white women and African women are the same. According to Consumer Finances, the median wealth of a single African woman in the U.S. is $5. The median wealth of a single white woman was about $42,600. With many schools moving to remote learning and African women bearing much of the burden of childcare, many are losing the jobs they had. The U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics reports that in the same period where white women gained, 263,000 jobs, 153,000 African women have lost their jobs. The labor of the African working class, men and women, is exploited and undervalued. When these colonial contradictions cause any problems with African parenting, child protective services can come and kidnap African children from their parents. Today on the People's War Radio Show to discuss this problem as well as provide African international solutions, we have Yesterday Orn Mila, president of the African National Women's Organization, to discuss their defense of African working class women. As the leader of the African National Women's Organization, President Yesterday has led a campaign to stop the state removal of black children from their families and organize support for African women who are incarcerated or the victim of police violence. She has fought against anti-African women dress code policies in schools and organized to stop horizontal or black-on-black violence in the African community by building unity and respect for African women. The African National Women's Organization is currently leading the fight for Black community control of child care with the Uhuru Kujiji Child Care Collective. Welcome to the show, President Yejide. Uhuru, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Uhuru, President Yejide. This month's Burning Spear newspaper has an excellent article on the Uhuru Kijiji Child Care Collective. During the coronavirus pandemic, African mothers and families have been heavily burdened with the responsibilities of child care. What is the Uhuru Kijiji Child Care Collective? The Uhuru Kijiji Child Care Collective is our African working class women's response to um everything that's been impacting us and our families. So initially we had a campaign called Arrest CPS, which spoke primarily to the conditions of black women and the rates at which our children were taken because of whatever the state deemed unacceptable. And we were fighting on the end where African, where African children had already been taken and we couldn't really mount a significant defense based on our resources. So we decided that we would go in and look at the whole question of African women and the whole scope of African women, African families and child um, childcare related things. Um, and we looked at the whole scope of the family and ways and t- as a way to minimize 
how the state can intervene. So we are we are collectively organizing African people in different communities to take responsibility of childcare and to help free up African women who may otherwise not have any other resources for childcare. Say, for example, if somebody wants to go to a job interview or if they just want time for themselves, we are organizing African women to collectively come together, um, African women and African community members, so it's not just African women, to come together to help each other um, with childcare responsibilities, number one. Number two, um, it is a way to take the, take, uh, eliminate the, the role that the state has in our lives. So if currently, if we don't have childcare, we either go to the state and maybe they might be able to help and offer assistance, right? Um, but that comes with a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, stipulations. And so we want to make sure that African women have African women as a resource as opposed to the state. And our goal with this is to have, uh, the purpose of this is to really reclaim our power in our communities and to eliminate the, the way that the state intervenes in our families. It has been a project of animals since 2015, but in recent months, Uhuru Kijiji Childcare Collective has really taken flight. Can you explain the recent developments for us? Yeah. So the recent developments are due to us having leadership over the project. Uh, while it has been a resolution of ours since we were founded in 2015, and it has had some iterations since since then. So we've had a homeschool collective and we've had the Kijiji Childcare Collective pop up at different events to deal with the whole childcare question. And we've had um, sisters and brothers in different locations take it on. Um, but it hadn't had any infrastructure, hadn't had any leadership from the African National Women's Organization in a real way. And so when we say leadership, we have someone who has the expertise in childcare. Her name is Uminifa Earth, and she is her she has her business as a childcare provider, and she has a lot of expertise in helping to build out what is required. And so she's helping to lead that process, and we need, and we are also building. Um, a national subcommittee, which will include members of AMWO, volunteers, etc., that can help really make sure that we have all of the infrastructure right. Because if we're saying we're going to replace the state, then we want to make sure that we have policies and procedures and rules of which people can participate in this in this process. And we want to be able to make sure that we have the training in, in place, that we can really expand this once it hits the ground running. And so it really has just been a limitation process, a problem uh, that is now solved and really looking forward to um, it becoming something that we see throughout our movement, but also um, throughout our movement in the United States, but also in other places around the world. How is the Uhuru Kijiji Childcare Collective structured? What's the organizing strategy? So the Kijiji is structured whereby we have a national subcommittee that reports to the executive committee of the African National Women's Organization. This national subcommittee is responsible for looking at the, the plan of action that we already had uh, and looking at how we can make it something tangible and how we can start to grow it in different locations. So once we have this national subcommittee established, then this national um, the national subcommittee leads the local we call satellites. Satellites are the national rep subcommittee represented on local levels. So for example, if somebody wanted to create the Kijiji in, in Brooklyn, New York, which we do have a satellite there, or in Washington, DC, or in Oakland, or any other city or place in the world, then we would require that they bring together at least three people to uh, initiate a satellite. Satellite has to have a chair or a secretary and a treasurer initially, and then we can bring on some other people who can fill out some other roles that are integral to this process. This satellite would then be responsible for helping to build cells in a city or cities um, or different areas of your city. So for example, a satellite may rep be representative of the whole city of Oakland, but within that city of Oakland, there are different neighborhoods um, that exist. And so a cell would be say, for example, in one of those neighborhoods, and then another cell could be in another neighborhood 15 miles away. Um, and so the satellite would be responsible to give leadership to these cells. 
and the cells would just be parents. Um, all of our structure can include parents all the way up to the National Subcommittee. But the cells we would envision would be primarily parents who are who require the, the help of the Kijiji and want to share time with other parents um, in care of their children. And so even down to the parent level, we have uh, training manuals and kits and things that parents would need to do and, and ways that we are bringing all the parents together on a national level and, and, and things like that. So that's pretty much the, the structure of how we plan to really execute this and bring it um, to our communities. And our plan is to start local and go global. Can you speak to the necessity for the organization of Uhuru Kijiji Child Care Collective in African communities through the U.S. and beyond? Yeah, this was something that was created before the pandemic because the movement has had a, a long history of dealing with the whole question of child care. We've had child care collectives before. We've had Saturday schools before. We've we even have, uh, I think, an Impedum uh, uh, um, virtual um, school as well. So this question of of bringing the education and care of our children into the hands of the African working class to provide it leadership is a key question for the, our movement. So because we see that um, the role of child caring um, is something that primarily falls on women, African women. And in our communities, we have a large percentage of African women, no matter where we are in the world, that probably do that alone. And so a lot of the responsibility, stress, financial burden, all of that falls on African women. And that can lead to a number of things. It can lead to neglect in some cases. It could lead to abuse. It can lead to stressed out situations. It can lead to children being left home alone. It can, be, it can lead to, in one case, I remember this case a couple of years ago where an African woman she didn't have childcare because her, her mother was working and, and the father wouldn't come by and watch the child. So but she had a job interview. So she took the child with her to a job interview and left the child in the car in, in the heat. And um, while she did the interview and so somebody walked by and saw that. And so there was a, you know, as a result of that, she was arrested and had her child taken away. And there was a whole push for her to, you know, for her defense in that case. But things like that happened. And we know that with all of these contradictions that African women can be pushed into the crosshairs of the state, whether it be, you know, contradictions that evolve from sending the child to school and not having the ability to um, do certain things. And so as a mandated reporter, the schools can report on you. Um, so the necessity for us means that we want to be able to help our community if African women have difficulty or are stressed out. We don't want them to become to become so desperate that they um, begin to seek out or make decisions that would otherwise harm themselves or their children. So we want to be able to be in our communities to help uplift African women and to provide support. Number one, number two, we believe that it's important for our children to be educated and gathered by us, and for us to have a process whereby we are taking responsibility for the future of our children. So it's not just the responsibility of the mother alone, but that is the responsibility of the community because if we share in that, then we then we can all ensure the success of that child. Um, and then of course, bringing them into this revolutionary process is a way to provide political education and, and other means to really educate our people and also organize the mothers in particular because we want them to become members of organization. We want them to become revolutionaries themselves. So this is a, a multi-pronged um, process that we intend to push out and win um, in our communities um, and, and bring you know, our whole communities into this revolutionary process. The Kijiji really is an anti-colonial project the African community has always built self-determined examples of child care. In the 1960s, the Black Panther Party had child care collectives, along with other community self-reliance programs, sometimes referred to as survival programs. Can you explain why the Uhuru Kijiji Child Care Collective is not simply a survival program, but instead a means of building dual and contending power? Yeah, we're fighting for our survival, but we're not fighting for our survival inside colonialism. 
we intend in this Uhuru movement to govern ourselves. And if we are serious about governing ourselves, we have to look at every single aspect of society in which African women are oppressed by it, by colonialism. And we have to try in this stage before we win our freedom to look at ways that we can build the infrastructure that will lead us out of, you know, old habits um, and eliminate, you know, colonizer contradictions. And so our project is about building a structure that's separate from the state that is better um, in terms of looking at the family structure. I mean, because the state will come into your home and say that you need, for example, if you're thinking of taking your child, they'll come into your home and say, that, oh, you need some food in your fridge. And they'll take your children out of your house. And then they, that's it. They don't provide you resources. And African women are left to figure out how they're going to get new housing, how they're going to get food in the house, how they're going to get heat. And for us, we're saying that this is the beginning of us thinking about all of that stuff. Like if an African woman is struggling how do we get her resources so that she can take better care of herself and her children? And in that way, it's a holistic process. And another way, it's also just replacing the need to go look for the state and also educating our community that the state is not your friend. The colonial state is not there to help. The colonial state has never been there to help. And they don't know what's best for our communities, but particularly when they, in one hand, claim to care about African children and take them, right? But on the other hand, another apparatus of the state goes out and kills them in our community. So we are really looking at this as a project of, of building something new and separate, allowing African women, men and children to participate in our own structure and really get a taste of what freedom is through a process of solving a problem that is intrinsic in our communities, not just here in the United States, but everywhere because African women are really bearing the brunt of this. Um, and so it really just creates an apparatus that allows African people to participate in a revolutionary anti-colonial project that is going to solve a significant you know, gap in our community. Uh, as a follow-up, I want to ask you this. Um, the Horukajiji Child Care Collective also seems to be reversing the exploitation of the value of African women's labor. We know that the assault on Africa and African people uh, has centered on, you know, the assault on African women and the exploitation of the labor of African women. So can you speak to some of the really ways through which the Huru Kijiji Child Care Collective is reversing that and really like placing the value of African women's labor into the hands of African women? Yeah, we know that under a system of capitalist colonialism, African workers' labor is often used for the benefit of the colonizer. And so that even looks at the whole question of African women who participate as part of the state in seeking African children, right? And so our our struggle with the Kijiji, I mean, it's deep, right? Like it's a deep issue. Our struggle with the Kijiji is to to recruit African women out of the state, <laughs> the colonial state to work for us. Like, like they're gonna be the ones who's gonna be responsible for protecting African children too, because it's not just an attack on the colonial state and African people who work within the colonial state. It is also to help African people who work for the state, the colonial state to give up that position and work in service of African um, families in a real concrete way. And it also looks at, you know, some ways that African women have to go, have to accept anything, you know, when they know that they have to just get a get a job just to pay for the childcare they need to have anyway, just to, just they just for them to have a job. And I think this allows African women workers to have a lot more options in terms of what they will and will not get because they they know that they have a system and a community that that's supporting them. So, and it also uses our labor within this within the context of this Kijiji for ourselves and helping to build offices, organize ourselves, organize resources on behalf of ourselves and our children so that all of the efforts that we're doing on an individual basis can now be collectivized so that it's not just helping ourselves, but it's helping other families. And in that way, you know, our labor is really being in one way or another being pulled back into the Africa project, which is us. 
and making sure that our communities and families have the resources, the skills, and the benefit of African women who can take time to um, participate in the, for lack of a better word, uplift <laughs> of the African nation. Uhuru, thanks for that. You make an interesting point about the Uhuru Kijiji Child Care Collective recruiting African women from the state to be in service to the African community. Up through the 1960s and even a little bit later, we know that a plurality of African women worked as caregivers to white families, to the development of the white nation that was central to that exploitation. And since then, we see rising numbers of African women uh, un being unemployed uh, when some of those labor shifts uh, took place and in certain places throughout the U.S. and the world, uh, African women no longer worked as caregivers to white families. Um, uh, even though we know some places African women still uh, work in, in those positions. Uh, but as a replacement, uh, just in interestingly, uh, we saw rising numbers of African women actually uh, becoming social workers, like you said. And uh, so it's like this like duopoly in which African women, because of the shifts in uh, parasitic capitalism, and colonial capitalism have become, you know, agents of the state. Some of them looking for jobs and thinking that that's a place where they can, uh, you know, help out families. And then other ones uh, on the flip side of that, not having jobs. So we mm -hmm. see African women like facing all, you know, being pitted against each other in a very interesting way. You know, I know in some families like my own, you know, uh, women go, went from being on social aid or whatever, to uh to, to to actually you know own the only job they can have is working in the system you know something like that so i just wanted to make that comment what what you think about that yeah i mean i mean i was i was a, a recipient of so you know social welfare when i was a little bit when i was younger when i was a new mom and um i remember one time that i went in for wick and the wick worker said to me and I wasn't making any money, right? <laughs> I wasn't really making nothing. But she said, you work, you you make more than I do. And I was just like, wow, because a lot of these social welfare programs were set up to recruit the same people who were recipients of it to also um, say that in order for you to get this benefit, then you can you can now work for the state and that will offset some of the the stuff that we can give you as well, or that can increase it, I don't know. But there's a stipulation there that I'm sure that others have more detail around. Right, but I knew right. That the, 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 the welfare to work program, and it really, yeah. accelerate, it really accelerated underneath Clinton. In California, yeah. they call it the Cal Works program, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so what we saw even at that time was um, African women being told that they, like I was told that I had to work for the city um, cleaning up stuff in order to get benefits. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that stuff. And, um, you know, as opposed to like really getting out of it. And so a lot of people see themselves trapped in that. But also there's a, there's a whole um, security question where African people believe that working for the government, right, that working for the government is a security is a security job, secure job, and with benefits, and they don't have to worry too much about getting fired too often and things like that. And so what that usually leads to is us facing off with one another. And it's sort of like the military. People do it because it provides some security, but they don't necessarily go into it believing in the whole sanctity of the state. And so we have an opportunity there. And we've actually spoken to social workers who who find their, their position opposite the community, a point of, at which they just decide to leave their jobs, a point at which they just cannot deal with being attacked um, as a worker by the state, but also as a worker who is trying to take somebody else's child. And they don't have an outlet for how they can combat or offset the, the stuff that they are doing from in, the, in service of the state. And so here we are creating apparatus where African social workers, people who really want, 
who who become social workers because they really want to heal African families and they really want to contribute something and they want to help, um, they have an opportunity to do so uh, within the, the structure of our committee as opposed to the structure of the state, which, you know, by all intents and purposes, doesn't help anybody. I mean, if somebody ever says, I'm going to report you to Child Protective Services, it's never like, yes, I need this break. <laughs> They'd be like, hell no. Nobody sees it as a positive outcome. And so, yeah, so our our goal to like really reclaim African women and men who, who really want to help African families, we're providing a structure whereby they can come in and actually do that and help us build um, out what we need to have in order to really have it function in the way that can really be beneficial to African families. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU. Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is Yesterday Orn Mila. Uhura President Yesterday. The African National Women's Organization under your leadership organizes against the special oppression of African women. How does this Uhuru Kijiji Child Care Collective fit into the overall mission of ANWA? Our overall mission is to recruit African women into revolutionary political life. And part of the ways that we do that is by having campaigns that are intrinsic to the lives of working class African women so that we can be where they are and help them understand what, you know, that what the conditions are for and what we have to fight in a real practical revolutionary way. Because oftentimes when we are just operating on our own and we're out in the world, we don't know, we have questions. We don't know why things are happening to us. We don't know why this is so tough or why this is so hard or why this is happening. And, and I think when we, when we look at AMWO as an organization, we are talking about the tough issues that, that usually go against the norm of what black women celebrate, you know, and um, politically and socially. And what I mean by that is that, you know, people might celebrate with pearls and chucks because of, of a Kamala Harris or uh, Michelle Obama or some other sort of petty booth figure. And we are like, no, we need to celebrate the fact that we have these strong ass African working mothers who are fighting the system and trying to get their children back, or who are fighting the system and building our own structure, who is creating an organization that will really deal with the meat and potatoes of what it means to challenge the very colonizer who is really attacking us as opposed to celebrating it in the form of white power and blackface. And so the Kijiji fits into that because now we have access to these women who are trying to solve a problem. The Uhura Kijiji Child Collective requires us to um, be where African women are and really help us to politicize them, to bring them into the fold of revolutionary theory and revolutionary practice, and to you know give them the information and knowledge and training that they need to become true revolutionaries. And at the end of the day, for Anwell, our main purpose is to recruit members, recruit women, recruit women from any all sectors of our all sectors of our society, but primarily solve the issues of the African working class. Uhuru, in virtually every measure of standard of living, African women are towards the bottom. Can you explain some of the special oppressions African women face? I can explain some. I mean, some we might not even have any scope because the it's so varied. In talking about African women who are who reside in the United States, there's a lot of data that says that African women are um, more likely in the United States to die from childbirth than her white counterpart. As a as a matter of fact, more likely than any other woman in the United States to die um, from from in childbirth and for her child to also die as a result of that process. Um, we have African women who are on the higher end of the scale when it comes to being victims of domestic or horizontal violence and intimate partner violence. African women who are growing in terms of their number in prisons. African women who are um, who are single parents because they, um, they may have colonial contradictions within their relationship or African men are just going to jail and the system has left African women single or um, I don't want to say going to jail because that just makes me like they took a trip to jail. <laughs> like, like African men are being incarcerated 
at high rates as well, and um, and, and or, or are being killed in our communities. Um, that's just some of the overlying things of data that we see on a daily basis. But there are other things as well that we don't see. So, for example, this whole question of operating in the state, um, African women, African women who are primarily the ones that go to schools, right? Like they go to the ones, they're the ones who go follow up on their children. And the amount of attacks that African women have to contend with on the school-based level in the United States is crazy. You have to always be in defense of your children. Um, just recently this week, there was a, a young girl in Osceola, Florida, who was attacked by a school resource officer. Um, and then there was, you know, there was African children in two campaigns that we led around hair, head scarves and head wrapping. So there's African girls who are contending against the state in schools as well, and African parents who are in defense of them. Um, and then, I mean, it's just so, so varied. There's African women who who may be considered a suspect in a crime, but are not charged with anything, who now have the state, because of their contact with the state, now have to undergo surveillance by the state um, in terms of their children being, they have to uh, have a worker assigned to them and oversee how they are as a mother, even though they, they've not been at all involved in any criminal activity um, that the state deems criminal activity. I mean, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of tentacles that reach in and 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 really offsets the the, the focus of African women, and a lot yet to be even discovered. I think, and the thing is that we don't want to discover all of them. We want to be able to crush this colonial system so that we won't we can cut off the heart of the, the monster with the tentacles and stop it from reaching into our communities and really tying up and binding African women and men. And so, um, yeah, so those are some of the issues that arise that we have to combat, but I think a lot of it um, is something that is yet for us to really understand, but we do understand colonialism and colonialism does have contradictions that impacting the lives of African people every day. Uhuru. In Anwo's Principles of Unity, you all state, we are not feminists, we are African internationalists, and follow the aims and objectives, and objectives consistent with the theory of African internationalism. What do you mean by that? Yeah, we're not feminists. Um, we mean that we are not, feminism is a line, a petty bourgeois line that um, most women who consider themselves feminists believe that they can get an equal society, equal to men, uh, underneath capitalism. I mean, there's iterations of feminism that says that they're anti-colonial feminists, radical feminists. It's all kinds of iterations. But generally speaking, feminism speaks to the equality of women to men and to have the same access to resources as men. And so generally speaking, feminism, which is a white concept, because white women were challenging the white male power structure because they themselves were cut out of it, were, um, were beginning to feel like they should have a piece of the loot, you know, a part of the loot that came from exploiting African people. And the tentacles at which we are talking about, um, that we were talking about before, feminism then saw how um, or white women saw how um, it was really hard to get women, black women on their team until they start looking at the conditions that happen in the African community that come as a result of colonialism, like the high instances of violence, not just with African women and men, between African women and men, but it was African people in general. But they exploited that whole question of violence between African women and men. Um, when we look at the whole suffragist movement, how they started to say that that black men were getting the right to vote before white women, and they used that to pit black women against um, white women, but black women were just like, I'm just glad we get to vote, you know, but they still <laughs> were there. Um, um, and so feminism for us is just a bourgeois concept that allows for uh, for uh, white women and black women 
to see themselves as a part of the colonial structure, to work towards that end. It is a vile um, uh, understanding. I don't even, it's not even a series of vile understanding because what it also does is, is, is um, demonize African men. And, and I don't care um, what somebody says. They're not opposed to African women, but men. But every time that I've seen a feminist speak out her mouth, it's always some vile, nasty, you know, contention to the intervention of African men or the, the, the praise of African men or just find any opportunity to kind of stomp out an African man. And our responsibility is not necessarily to protect African men um, in, as a blanket statement, but to protect the African family and to be able to um, contend with this line that is, is very harmful and divisive to African people. And so as African internationalists, we understand that the primary reason that African women are suffering is not because of something called patriarchy that feminism identifies, which is male dominance over women, but the reason why African women are suffering in, um, is because of this whole question of colonial domination. Just like African men, African women were kidnapped off of the continent of Africa, we experienced extreme amounts of violence um, that was uh, meted out against us. We've had to go through the same sorts of attacks for centuries. And so our relationship to the system is different um, based on that, uh, based on those experiences. So feminism doesn't uh, even address the colonial question. Feminism just uh, addresses this whole thing around patriarchy. But say, for example, if, if African women and men were able to find unity and nobody hurt another, another human being, another person in our community, um, it still leaves colonialism intact. And so for us, the question of African women's leadership is right in step with um, destroying the system that continues to deepen the exploitation and division amongst African people and and to also bring African women to a process whereby we are solving all the issues that 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 um, has held African people back. So not just African women, but we are also solving and contending with the issues that um, that have um, left African people backwards in their thoughts and unraveling in that so that we can really see where those roots come from so that we can fight against them. Uhuru. The Uhuru Kijiji Child Care Collective seems to be an important institution addressing the need for child care and to free up African women to fully participate in economic and political life. It's also a response and defense of African families who are targeted by child protective services by the removal of children from the home. And you've mentioned the militant campaign that annual wage called Arrest CPS. Can you tell us a little bit more about that campaign? Yeah, Arrest CPS um, was a campaign that is a campaign that we still very much believe in. It's not, but we were facing it. We were looking at African mothers who were contacting us from around the world. It wasn't US-based only. We got complaints from as far away as Sweden, um, all the way over to California. It was a, a worldwide campaign. Um, and African mothers were calling us because they needed assistance with um, with the crisis that they were experiencing at the moment, which was their children had been taken from, from them by the state and they wanted them back. They wanted access to lawyers. They wanted us to help contend with the state. They wanted to know how they can get their children back etc. And we still get um, calls around that. And so the in, in its early stages, the Red CPS really primarily had the capacity to expose this as a contradiction that was happening in the African community and to raise defense of African mothers who were fighting for their children back because there was overall a sense of, of uh, wary around it. People didn't know how to take it because they automatically believe that the state was right. And when I say people, our people, African people, automatically believe the state was right because a mother may not have been as clean as they would like or may have screamed at her children so many times. And so they might have justified, they might felt like there was a justified response by the state. But what we were finding is that even though with these, what, what could be contradictions, that mothers really love their children 
And in most instances, children are removed from the home because because of nonviolent offenses like neglect or um, they might not have enough food in the house. And that's what they identify as neglect, not having enough food. Or electricity might have been turned off. And in one case, we found that a landlord in retaliation for the tenant turned off the heat to the house and, if a, and called CPS. And so when CPS arrives and there's no heat in the house, they automatically find that this is a crisis situation and want to take the children out of a house as opposed to restoring the heat in the home. And so our um, our campaign really was centered around defending African mothers, exposing the state and the state's workers, and to um, really make the demand for um, the return of the children so great that the state had to respond. Um, one of the things that we ran into as a contradiction to this is that the state did respond, but they didn't respond in a happy-go-lucky way. In some cases, they did gag orders um, on the mothers, and that resulted in that if the mother were to speak about it, the mother would be sent to jail. In the other cases, they sent the police to their homes uh, on some false charges. In other cases, it was um, it was really a holding on to the children and, and putting the the workers against the mothers. And of course, there's a hostile relationship between the workers and the mothers because the mothers feel like the workers are working for the state. And so some of the workers are really um, fighting for their lives. And 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 what I mean by that is by they, they would defend their actions because they work for the state and they would attack the mothers. And so there's a whole, whole level of uh, violence that happens, emotional violence, physical violence that happens as a result of, a, of the, the child being taken out of the home and so many people who are involved in that process. So some, uh, um, so we were finding that in our capacity as an emerging organization that we didn't have enough of the resources that we could use to, uh, you know, really help them get their child back. And so we're continuing to work to make sure that we can really build up to the process whereby we have lawyers on deck, whereby we have resources in terms of food and money and things like that. But we also wanted to use Arrest CPS as a recruitment tool as well. We wanted to organize these mothers so that they could actually organize, be a part of organization and lead a national, international campaign against what was happening to them. Um, and um, what we found is that we needed to have mothers who were not current, currently in that process because um, when the state has your children, you are very, your hands are tied with, with, a, with a lot of what you can do. But if we have people who have gone through it, then those were really strong assets to us. And so what we're doing is we're pulling them into this process of Uhuru Kijiji and we're infusing it because the Kijiji is also going to be a way to mount a defense against them, use all the resources that we're gathering for the Kijiji, like the people who have worked for the state, like for social services and things like social workers and counselors that we're bringing into the Kijiji process will help um, with some of the resources that are needed for African mothers who are contending with the state, but also be able to politically engage with the state in a way that we had not before. So we're really hoping that the merger of these two campaigns is going to really bring us to the part point of uh, no return where we are actually winning um, winning on every front here. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is Yesterday Oronmila. President Yesterday, you just came out of presenting in a series of Black Power Summit regional conferences that spanned as far and wide from the Western United States all the way to South Africa. And you are presenting at the African People's Socialist Party plenary titled African Workers of the World Unite and Organize. Can you speak to some of the international work of ANWO? Yeah. So ANWO has a history of being outside of the United States, obviously. And, you know, our work um, has always been to bring African women from around the world together to work on issues. And I'm really happy to say that we've been successful in doing that in all of our five years. And we want more international participation um, from African women because we don't want this to be a, a, a US-centric organization. We really want to represent the interests of African women from all over the place. Um, we have um, in South Africa now a configuration of AMO that we started, that we, that we founded in 2020. And we're really excited about, you know, the developments that are happening there. And, you know, the 
situation and conditions for African women in South Africa, just like everywhere else in the world, are really dire. A lot of high unemployment, poverty, children, childcare issues, and things and things of that sort. So we're really excited about, you know, our opportunities to really build there. Um, in the past, we've had um, branches and membership, and we still have membership in places like England and Sweden and um, on in Cameroon and um, in Kenya. So we've had, you know, African women who have participated through our work um, all over the world. And what we will be fighting for moving forward is for more consistent memberships, for more consistent growth, and to see the reflection of our work um, in a long-term effects in places like South Africa and other places in the United States and Europe. And we really want to emerge in the Caribbean um, and in South America and Central America. As we begin 2021, what does the future hold for your work? And if people want to build an Uhuru Kijiji Child Care Collective in their local community, how would they go about doing that? In 2021, we are battening down the hatches. We are becoming more of a cadre organization. And what that means is that we're really pushing the whole revolutionary revolution question onto our membership. We are holding our members to task. We don't want just members who unite and pay dues, even though that's cool. We want membership who are willing to jump in and help build these things because that's what it's going to take if we ever expect to have a different reality than what has been um, tossed on us through colonialism. And the people who want to build the Kijiji Child Care Collective, they can go to our website at amwouhuru.org and click on our campaigns button at the very top. And there's a, a section there for the Kijiji. You click on that on our page, there is a form that you can fill out that um, that will show us that you are interested. And then we can, from there, we will call you and find out what your interests are and invite you to participate on one of the committees associated with the Kijiji. Uhuru, President Yesterday, we have a couple more minutes left. So if you wanted to add something for like two or three minutes, uh, you can do that. Uh, okay. Yeah, I just, I, I appreciate you all asking me to come on the show. And I, I just also want to appreciate the leadership of Comrade Omani for Earth, who has really brought life into this, breathed life into the Uhuru Kijiji. And we're calling on African women from around the world that if you have a specific skill or you don't have any specific skills, that AMO is a place for you to participate in this work. We are dealing with, you know, uh, several campaigns this year, but there is way more work that has to be done to build infrastructure for African women. And we say to you, you know, the Congress and the Senate of wherever you are ain't about you. Like they're not, they're about either the African petty bourgeoisie or you know, forwarding that question, hoping, you know, ensuring that you continue, to, the petty bourgeoisie continue to have money in their pockets, or they're the, the white, the colonial bourgeoisie that only forwards the, the interest of, you know, capitalist colonialism. And we're saying that this process that we're initiating is our Congress, is our infrastructure, is our thing. And then if we really want to find our way out of this, see our way out of this, that we have to start to invest our time and our resources into building our own infrastructure. So we invite African women from anywhere in the world to participate in AMWO and join, not just as a volunteer, but join as a member and become a dues-paying member in our organization by going to our website, amwouhuru.org. And that's what I want to leave people with. It's time, the time is now to organize ourselves because you know capitalism is in crisis and it's our responsibility to kick it in the balls <laughs> until it falls into the ground and stomp it out. <laughs> I, 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 I don't even know if we can keep that. <laughs> but, but, I'm, but I'm happy you said it. <laughs> That's our defense mechanism. We tell women to always kick the man in the balls. Yeah? That's what we, we need to be able to do and crush it, you know? So, ooh. <laughs> ooh. <laughs> All right. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today was Yejide Ornmila, president of the African National Women's Organization. WBPU 
is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit APEDF.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast on wubp.podbean.com. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Ankh, visit developmentforafrica.org. We'd like to thank our guests, President Yesterday Oranmila, for joining us today. We'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. Domestic violence, that's colonial virus. Sexual violence, that's colonial virus. Horizontal violence, that's colonial virus. State violence, that's colonial virus. Gentrification, that's colonial virus. Incarceration, that's colonial virus. Deportation, that's colonial virus. The need for constant inebriation, y'all, that's colonial virus. Attacks on black women, that's colonial virus. Attacks on black men, that's colonial 